Welcome back, hockey fans. This is episode 115 of Clappercast Hockey Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm hosting this week's episode. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone to make sure you check out our website, clappercast.com, to find all of our content, blog posts included. Recently, we put up posts on Connor McDavid's tone-deaf press conference, and I've been starting a mini-series on NHL One-Hit Wonders as well. Also, to follow us on social media, Facebook and Instagram at Clappercast Media, and on Twitter at Clappercast. And there you can find more content, updates, the occasional meme, and some hockey news and updates throughout the week. So it's been a couple weeks by now, and we've got some stuff to catch up on. Uh, first up, in Vancouver, we've got what appears to be a good portion of the front office positions have been filled up. Um, Jim Rutherford brought in his guy, Patrick Alvin, as GM. Um, Alvin spent most of his playing career in Sweden, aside from a couple seasons in the ECHL slash IHL, and then there was a partial year in Norway as well. So Patrick becomes the first Swedish general manager in the NHL. Um, he spent his post-playing career working in scouting, first for the Montreal Canadiens, and then he had spent the past 16 years or so with the Pittsburgh Penguins. He worked his way up from scouting to director of scouting to assistant GM and was even the interim GM after Jim Rutherford had left. They have also brought in Emily Castonguay as assistant GM, becoming the first woman in Canucks history to be an assistant general manager, as well as the first in the NHL since the mid-90s. She was also the first woman to be an NHLPA certified player agent. Um, as a hockey player, she spent four years playing NCAA with uh, Niagara University, and she captained the team there for the last two seasons, then began pushing towards a career in hockey with a finance and a law degree. So her reputation is amazing. Her clients respect the hell out of her, and she's incredibly knowledgeable and dedicated. So I would expect that very soon she will start being the mix for, the, for general manager positions when they start opening up. This past week as well, Henrik Lundqvist's number 30 was raised to the rafters in New York. The King became one of the greatest goalies of his generation and one of the greatest in New York Rangers history. His career record of 459 wins, 310 losses, and 96 overtime or shootout losses with 887 games played. He had a 243 goals against average and a 918 save percentage. So just an outstanding career. It was unfortunate that he never ended up uh, getting a cup, but um, not everyone can, I guess. The highlight of the evening of his jersey retirement was a clip where uh, Lundqvist was on the broadcast talking about former teammate Matt Zuccarello. And in the process of saying, don't let that guy score, Zuccarello rips a clapper and scores. So just uh, jinxing it a little bit there for the Minnesota Wild to get a goal against New York on, on that night for Henrik. Sticking with the Metro Division just for a little bit more here, uh, Dougie Hamilton's first season in New Jersey, it hasn't quite been as good as expected. There's been a combination of the team being a bit lackluster and they've been struggling in a difficult division. And Dougie himself, he's been injured a lot and he uh, spent some time on COVID protocol, but I think that was coinciding with an injury so it didn't keep him out of any games. But all these things have kind of kept him from really shining. Um, in his recent absence due to a broken jaw, Damon Severson has been a player who has jumped into the Dougie Hamilton-sized hole on the Devil's Blue Line and he's done very well. Um, Severson's currently got 21 points in 41 games for the season as a whole but he's got 10 points in the 10 games that Hamilton has missed in this most recent injury stretch. And Severson's also averaging over 26 minutes of ice time per game, which is insane. That's massive amounts of ice time. And he's even, uh, he's even playing more than Dougie Hamilton when Hamilton is in the lineup, which is quite telling. So he's also playing against the tough matchups. He's helping the power play. And he's really been an unsung, stable presence, a stable leadership presence on their blue line this past season into one of the bigger stories over the past couple weeks of NHL here. Um, Aaron Dell was suspended for three games for interference after he hit Drake Batherson into the boards, and Batherson then suffered a high ankle sprain on this play, and he's out for at least a couple months. So this was 100% a dirty-as-hell play. Uh, the, the play was going behind the net. Batherson was skating in that direction. He's forechecking to chase the puck carrier. So as he approaches the net, Dell steps out of the crease and leaned in and lowered his shoulder into Batherson, which sent Drake flying feet-first in the boards, and he was injured. 
So there's absolutely no reason for Arendelle to do this. It's dangerous, it's disrespectful, and it's completely unnecessary in in terms of being a hockey play, a, a decent hockey play. Batherson is in no way expecting to be hit by the goalie in this situation. Like, he doesn't have the puck. He's forechecking. He's skating at a high speed towards the boards. Like, he's not, he's not prepared. He's not bracing himself for any sort of contact here. So this is a huge hazard, and it's one of the big reasons why we got hybrid icing in the first place, so that players weren't skating at full speed into the boards. Bit of a different situation being a hit versus chasing an icing call, but you know we're still we still have a, a forechecking player skating aggressively towards the boards. So Aaron Dell has a history of being this type of aggressive player. Um, he skated out to the half wall to hit Eli Tolvin in a couple weeks ago, and he got called for interference on that play. A couple of years ago, he pulled this exact same play that he just did on Batherson. He did the same thing to Mark Stone and sent Mark Stone into the boards dangerously. Um, Stone luckily didn't get hurt on the play, I don't think, but he was incensed and went straight after Arendelle. And then a few years ago, he gave Sam Bennett a very hard slash. That was undetected at the time. So we can sense a bit of a pattern here for Arendelle where he's a bit more maybe aggressive or physical than we normally see out of a goalie, but um, he's really got to do a bit of a better job of being physical in a in a clean way and not uh, not not making it dangerous for the players around him. And in terms of this particular play, like it's totally normal for a goalie to stand in the way and make the skater take a slightly longer route behind the net just to give that defender a fraction of a second longer to make a play. But normally the goalie's not going to lower the shoulder into the poor checking player. So this is a play that we better not see again. Dell was already waived by the Sabres and he cleared as their other goalies returned. But this is not something that I want to see become a regular thing where the goalie starts taking a stance, uh, taking a step into players who are just forechecking and going behind the net. Moving on to something else here, it seems like we have a bit of a new weekly segment showing up on this podcast, and that's probably going to be titled something like, uh, which defender is being added to the trade bait board this week? So this week, we've got Jeff Petrie, and this one comes as a bit of a shock, but apparently there's been some discontent and frustration behind the scenes, both for Petrie and the organization that seems to be bubbling over a little bit. So at this point, uh, Petrie has been with Montreal for about seven years after he got traded there in 2015. And in that time, he's become one of the league's better defenders, especially over the past two seasons. Um, He's been a consistent 40-point guy over the past four seasons, and he's even received a few Norris votes a couple of times. But this season, he's been abysmal and invisible for the most part. He's got six points in 37 games. He lost the role as the team's top defender. I think the I think the Canadians are using Ben Chirot more in that position at this point. And he hasn't been engaged or involved in much of the games he's been playing. Um, you know, for fantasy hockey, he used to be kind of a multi-category player where he's putting up a lot of shots, hits, and blocks. And he wasn't. He was barely he was barely making a, an appearance on the score sheet at all. Now he was reportedly hurt, playing hurt through the early part of the season. And after returning from that holiday pause and having some time to recuperate through December and early January, he's been much better. He's been putting up points. He's been um, getting more hits and blocks and shots. But it's just been nowhere near the level of the previous recent seasons. One of the telling moments for Petrie in this this season in general was uh, this past weekend's game, uh, Montreal versus Edmonton, where Zach Cassian cut behind the net. He clipped um, Sab Montebeau, the Habs goalie, and he knocked him down and knocked his helmet off but there was no response. Petrie skated towards Cassian, but that was it. There was no no fight, no scrum, no face wash, no engagement. Um, the team, and Petrie especially, are being slammed for that response, and he's lost a ton of favor with the fans over the way the season has gone. And he's kind of had a rough one a bit personally and professionally. 
as it sounds like his family has been living in the U.S., and that's just been a bit of a difficult arrangement for him. Petrie this season, he's in the first year of a four-year, $6.25 million per season deal, so that's going to make it very difficult to trade him with that big of a uh, contract involved. And it also raises the price significantly by having so many years left. Right now, we're seeing a bit of a trend with other players available where the price is a couple of prospects, a high draft pick, and even some sort of NHL-ready player. And Petrie's going to be no different. He might end up getting a bit of a package on the higher end of that as well. Um, new Habs GM Kent Hughes, he's also stated that he wants to bring in a veteran core to surround the younger Habs players. So I would kind of expect him to want to acquire someone like that with a few seasons left in their career in this potential trade. For me, the easiest trade destination is going to be Detroit for Jeff Petrie. Um, he's from the area, he's from Ann Arbor, the Red Wings have a ton of cap space, and they're going to greatly benefit by having an experienced defender like Petrie to play with that younger core, especially to have someone like him around more Sider. Petrie and Sider are both right Ds, so I'm not quite sure how versatile they are on which side to play to be the top pairing combined, or if they'd be kind of a 1A, 1B type arrangement, but Montreal sort of had the same thing going with Weber and Petrie, so it's absolutely doable. Now I'm just going to armchair GM here for a moment, uh, but based off of the previous return package that's been kind of talked about in a lot of other deals kind of wonder if the return would be spilt for something around like philip ronick and philip uh, zadina or joe valeno another prospect maybe mid-level mid to low high level and a higher draft pick as well and those are all pieces i could see being in a return from detroit they've got a, an excess of prospects at this point they've done a really good job at stocking those up and if they bring in a right d like petrie then philip ronick kind of becomes expendable because they're not going to need Cider, Petrie, and Philip Ronick on the right side for defense. For a potential Jeff Petrie destination, I also kind of wonder about Nashville, as the Predators definitely have a cap space right now, and they would be able to put together a decent futures package for Petrie with guys like Philip Tomasino and Eli Tolvanen, who could possibly be a part of that trade. And right D is a position that Nashville could really use a boost in, no disrespect to Philip Myers, Matthew Benning, and uh, Alex Alexander Carrier. They've been doing fine and just you know, the Nashville is one of the better teams in the Central, so obviously it's not, it's working for them. But could you imagine if they got Jeff Petrie and then their top pairing suddenly became Roman Yossi and Jeff Petrie? Like, that would be absolutely nasty. And one last potential team that could make a play for a Jeff Petrie are the Anaheim Ducks. And Anaheim is surprisingly in a playoff hunt this season, and they might want to make an ad like this to help them compete a bit sooner if they internally decide that their rebuild is progressing enough that they can start to turn the corner a little bit and you know push push for the playoffs a bit so they absolutely have the cap space right now and they have the prospects and the futures to be able to put together quite a decent package for petrie possibly a mix of someone more nhl ready like sam Steele or max jones and then one of their better guys not on the nhl roster like a jacob perot or Braden tracy and depending on where these two players are willing to go, Montreal might want to look at targeting a guy like Josh Manson or Kevin Shattenkirk in return. Now, Manson they would have to re-sign as his contract is up at the end of the season, but they're both righties uh, who are you know, more in the veteran stage of their careers, and they could fit that, uh, that criteria that Kent Hughes wants of bringing in a, a veteran core to surround his younger players with. A lot of the other teams that I've mentioned who would be in on other defenders like Florida and uh, Boston and Washington they might not have the cap space to really be able to pull this particular trade off, so I don't see them as being as competitive on, on a Jeff Petrie trade as opposed to someone who's a little bit cheaper like a Chikorin or a Ben Chirot. So I kind of see some of these other teams with um, current who currently have a lot of cap space and they won't have to really make any room. They can just acquire Jeff Petrie. I see them as the main, uh, the main people in on a Jeff Petrie trade. 
And moving over to Jeff Petrie's former team, the Edmonton Oilers, um, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the Oilers again as well, as they've sort of broken out of their slump again, and they're now on a four-game win streak as of the time of this recording. So it started in the last two games of that seven-game losing streak where they uh, they did outplay and outshoot their opponents at the time. It was Ottawa and Florida for portions of the game. They just didn't have the staying power of the finish to actually win or get a lead or do really anything for that matter. And this is especially notable for that Florida game that they lost 6 nothing. They obviously did not play very well there, but they had started turning the play around and they dominated for a large portion of that first period in that game. So they've got a bit of their confidence back in their game. They're controlling play, they're being proactive, and they're creating chances offensively, which is opposed to where they were before, where they look completely out of sorts and like it was really difficult for them to get anything going. So they're forcing things and that obviously isn't going to work. Like Connor McDavid can only be a one-man team for so long. Miko Koskinen has also found his way out of that slump as well, and he's making some big saves, and he's keeping the team in the game. And I'm thinking specifically of a save in that slump-breaking win against Calgary, where it's tied 3-3 with about 10 minutes left in the third, and Koskinen makes a cross-crease sliding save on, I believe it was Dylan Dubé, and he kept the game tied there, and Edmonton eventually won 5-3. So those are the saves that the team needs just to give the skaters some confidence in the goalie. And you could tell how defeated a lot of the players were when Miko Koskinen would give up a goal and then suddenly the energy is just completely sucked out of the team and they just look and act deflated. So it was nice to see Koskinen make some big saves and you can tell the energy is different around the players on the ice right now, which is just, it's so nice to see. And now moving forward, we also get to see what Evander Kane does to and for the team. Um, Going back a couple of episodes to get my full feelings on this signing, like I'm not a fan of this overall, due to the off-ice and locker room stuff that I just don't trust has been properly and healthily dealt with. But here we are anyways, Evander Kane is an oiler, and it's yet another attempt at a power-forward type to play with McDavid. His debut was kind of eh. He scored the first goal of the game, and he hit a couple of guys, but I didn't really notice him a whole lot, and he ended up just trying to elbow Nick Suzuki in the head, so there's that. And now what the Oilers do have is the forward depth to roll three legitimate scoring lines. So in this first game, they had Evander Kane, Connor McDavid, and Kyler Yamamoto on the top line. They had Warren Fogle, Leon Dreisaitl, and Yesapulia Yarvi on the second line. Then they had Zach Hyman, Ryan Nugent-Hopkins, and Zach Cassian on the third line. And all three lines were solid. That Hyman-Nugent-Hopkins-Cassian line connected for a couple of goals. Hyman broke out of a huge slump for himself. He hadn't scored in almost a couple of months at that point. And, you know, it's, it's the type of scoring depth that um, Edmonton just hasn't been able to ice ever. They're usually stuck trying to put, you know, fourth-line wingers on Connor McDavid's line and expecting them to suddenly become 20-goal scorers. It works for Patrick Maroon, but not everyone can do that. So I'd be okay with these this particular composition of forward lines, you know, as the season progresses. It gives the Oilers the ability to separate McDavid to Dreisaitl permanently, It lets Nugent Hopkins center his own line, and it just gives them three legitimate lines that can produce offensively, which the scoring depth beyond McDavid and Dreisaitl has perennially been an issue for Edmonton, so it's great to see them be able to separate all that and still be able to produce well. We'll see how the wings on Leon Dreisaitl's line work out, though, as Warren Fogle has not yet found a whole lot of consistency in his game, and Yesapulia Yarvi is in a huge slump, and um, he's going to need to break out of it pretty soon here, or else they might need to start flipping things around again just to find his game. The Oilers play a lot in February, so there's going to be a ton of opportunities for that to happen as they get to a bit more consistent game action again.
That wraps things up for this time here on Clappercast. Make sure you rate and review this episode and toss a follow or subscribe our way. For more content, you can follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Clappercast Media or on Twitter at Clappercast. Thank you all for tuning in, and we'll be back next week with more Hockey Talk.